We're picking up in Matthew chapter 20 this morning. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. There's numerous themes throughout this passage, but one that sticks out to me is this notion of promotion. Promotion is that that age-old, long-sought, money-making personal ambition. Now, there's nothing inherently sinful about promotion, but it's quite stunning at how quickly sin can enter this notion of promotion. A promotion is that drive to to get ahead. It's that drive to to be first. It's that drive to, to make a name. It was Milton Berle who said, if opportunity doesn't knock, build a door. It's a bit, to get a promotion, you can go out this morning and you can buy a book, How to Get Promoted, Simple Steps to a Better Title and Higher Pay, 10 Tips to Get Promoted. There's even a book entitled How Not to Get Promoted, Fixing the Self-Sabotaging Behaviors that Hold You Back. I found that one on a Christian website. You can travel the blogosphere, all kinds of folks weighing in on how to get promoted their own personal opinions and views offered up through the blog. You can heed their advice. It's good advice. If you want to get promoted, make money. The boss loves people that make money. You get promoted by making the boss more money. They'll tell you to do the job without the title. It's easy to slide into that promotion if you're already doing the work. And of course, you want to go above and beyond in all that you do. Make yourself indispensable to the company. There are many things that you should not do, a few don'ts. Don't ask for a promotion after layoffs. Be wise in your timing. Don't be the office drama dispenser. And don't lose it if you miss an opportunity. You may not make that promotion, but throwing things at the boss is a deterrent to future opportunities. Well, in today's account, in Matthew chapter 20, two disciples seek that top floor corner office. They approach Jesus seeking position in the kingdom of God. They seek promotion. But more than that, they're pursuing self-promotion. And it's doubtful that you and I will ever approach Jesus in quite the same way they do in this account. I also am quite confident you're not flying a flag emblazoned with I'm number one in your front yard. Because self-promotion is much more shrewd than that. It's much more subtle. Self-promotion is the culture of Facebook and Twitter It's these platforms meant to advance my reputation or the one that I want people to believe. Self-promotion is the language of small talk. It's those small drops promoting who I am, what I've done, my children's accomplishments, the honor roll, my commendation. The Bible speaks wisdom on this. Let Another praise you and not your own mouth, it says, but someone else and not your own lips. You see, the distance between promotion and self-promotion is a very short road to travel. And the way up is not through self-promotion. In the kingdom of God, the way up is down. 
We'll begin in Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 this morning, and here we'll discover three secrets for promotion in the kingdom of God. All of these have to do with serving other people. In fact, we'll learn in a moment that it's Jesus who did not come to be served, but to serve. I want to look at the first three verses, verses 17 through 19. The first secret would be simply said, watch your mentor. Keep your eye on your mentor. God has given each of us as believers a mentor in our faith. Jesus is our example to imitate. Verse 17, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Our Lord is our mentor. He wrote the book on greatness. He defines what it means to be great, and in this passage he predicts his death and his resurrection. He lays down his life for other people. Today is Palm Sunday. It is the day of his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. What he predicted in these verses, he fulfilled. He would go on to fulfill exactly what's predicted in our passage. His prediction, by the way, represents a very high view of the Old Testament. Passages like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 41 and Zechariah 14, they all predicted cruel treatment. There's four specifics in our passage, four predictions of what is to come. He will be delivered. He will be condemned. He will be handed over. And he will be raised up. It's the fourth time Matthew records something like this. Jesus in this gospel has already made similar predictions. On three other occasions, he's predicted this. And as Jesus predicts this, he becomes more specific each time. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus says it this way, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Perhaps a bit veiled in that passage, he gets more specific as he goes along. Later in chapter 16, verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And then most recently in chapter 17, while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised up on the third day. He makes such grim predictions of his own life. Does he find comfort or consolation, or does he find contention when he does. Back in chapter 12, it was that prophecy of of being in the belly for three days. 
He spoke that in the midst of the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were bent on killing him. In chapter 16, the very next verse, right after he predicted his death, Peter rebukes him. And then in chapter 17, we read that most recently, the disciples, immediately following that prediction, they begin to quarrel among themselves, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Boy, we can only hope for a little empathy in today's account. His destination is Jerusalem. He's on the way. He's on the road. The text says, quote, he went up. The city of Jerusalem is approximately 2,500 feet above sea level. It is indeed a city upon a hill. To give you some context, the city of Bellingham is about 400 feet above sea level. And he was going to Jerusalem to serve. And he was going to Jerusalem to die. And as we've mentioned, he arrived there on a Sunday. We call this the triumphal entry. It's the day we celebrate today. On Monday, he'll go and he'll cleanse the temple. He will unleash a righteous anger against those who are buying and selling and polluting this holiest of all places. Tuesday, he's back at the temple. Now he's interacting with religious leaders. They're questioning him, by by what authority are you doing these things? Of note that night, he also delivers a sermon outside of town, a sermon entitled The Olivet Discourse, where he predicts many events yet to come. Wednesday is a quieter day, unless you're his opponents, because it was on Wednesday that the Sanhedrin or this religious council gathered together and sought a way to kill him. Thursday, events quicken. On Thursday, Jesus celebrates the Passover. Our glorious model of service, our Lord Jesus Christ, shows us what it means to serve. He washes his disciples' feet at this event. He institutes what is called communion or the the Lord's Supper. And as midnight passes, he's out of town just outside the city praying, which brings us to Friday, midnight. The only good thing about Good Friday is what it accomplished, because it was an extremely hard day for our Lord. In the darkness of that early morning, sometime after midnight, the Lord is arrested Multiple trials take place through the night into the day. There's Jewish trials, and then there's Roman trials. It would be on Friday that his leading disciple, the one he's invested in perhaps most, Peter, Peter betrays Jesus. On Friday, Judas hangs himself. Everything of verse 19 that Jesus predicted comes true. It becomes his own personal experience. He's mocked and he's scourged, and he's crucified. And as the sun sets on Friday, the bloody body of Jesus hangs upon a cross. And as the sun rises one week from today, the sun shines in upon a cold, empty tomb. On the third day, 
He rose just as he promised. And this man, this God-man, who endured the events of this week, is a model for you, and he's a model for me. He's our mentor. He is the embodiment of all that it means to live in a way that promotes the kingdom of God and the glorious name of God. He's someone who's gone before us. He's done everything he's asked us to do, but he's done it perfectly. He's walked our roads. He's walked our sufferings. He knows our joys. You see, in this life, you and I, we're going to encounter many good role models. We're going to read authors that we love. We're going to have our favorite preachers. We're going to have our favorite bosses. God has gifted people in huge ways to accomplish great things. They're going to be wonderful resources for us. But there are no close seconds to Jesus Christ. He is our model, and He is our mentor, and He is our master. To live this life, we're given a life to imitate, we're given a mentor. Watch your mentor. Secondly, avoid the water cooler. Avoid the water cooler. If you want to get ahead, avoid the water cooler. Now, the water cooler has gained a reputation in most workplaces as a place to avoid, at least if you want to please the boss. It's kind of a stand-in for bad behavior in the office. Gossip, harassment, low productivity, those are the events of the water cooler. In other words, there are certain traits that kill promotion in the world. There are certain traits that kill advancement in the kingdom. You see, kingdom living involves not only ways to live, things that we do or should do, it also involves things that we should avoid, things we should not do. And as we get into this section of our message, I want to read verses 20 through 28. We're going to focus on the first four verses then. Picking up in verse 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. But Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. After hearing this, excuse me, but Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom. For many. Well, if Jesus is our model, if he's our mentor, if he's our example of what to do or how to live, we now have a counterbalance to that. We have here an example of what not to do. Attitudes contrary to, to kingdom living. 
and they concern competition, ambition, and ignorance. Let's begin here with competition. We learned last week in the parable how unhelpful it is for you and I to compare ourselves to other people. If you can recall in that parable, there were those full-time workers. They were out in the burden of the day. They were out in that hot sun working all day long, something comparable to a 12-hour shift. There were folks that came out and worked one hour that day. Both those full-time workers and those part-time workers all earned a denarius, the exact same pay. That really angered the full-time guys. They're looking at the part-time guys wondering, how in the world do we not get paid more than them? It is not helpful to compare ourselves to others. It turned into jealousy for them. It led to complaining. It led to selfishness. Many a person can turn anything into a competition. Competition here today, it heats up among these disciples. In verse 20, Mrs. Zebedee approaches Jesus. She and her two sons. It's important to note that Mama Zebedee did not hatch this plan by herself. In verse 22, Jesus will reply to them. The word you is plural. Literally, you all do not know what you are asking, Jesus says. We see in our text that one person asked, but there was more than one person up to this request. When we harmonize the gospel accounts, when we bring them all together, we understand more about this family. The mother's name is Salome. That makes her the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. That makes her the aunt of Jesus. She has two sons. Their names are James and John. Mark chapter 10 records this same account, and he identifies the two by name. That makes then these two disciples first cousins of Jesus. Now, if playing the family card is in the deck, we should also note the tall stacks of chips at Mrs. Zebedee's disposal. The family ran what appears to be a pretty successful fishing business. Over in Mark chapter 1, verse 20, her husband employed hired servants, indicating that there was some level of, of wealth, some level of success in the family fishing business. So now put this all together. You have family ties. You have wealth. You can see how this really grinds someone's gears. And grinding the gears of the disciples is what it did. The ten of them in verse 24, it says they were indignant. They're offended. They're incensed. They're irate. This is that feeling when your power's out of your house for a day and the fridge starts to stink. This is that feeling when you've had severe pain and the doctor can't get you in for a month. This is that feeling when your car smashed into and the guy takes off. You know this feeling. And I don't know if these disciples wanted the thrones for themselves. I'm not sure if they're jealous that they hadn't thought of this first. I'm very reluctant to think that their motives are pure. How dare you, James and John, ask for such a thing? That's so unholy. I think of Peter and John in particular. We know that John's one of the two with his mom asking for this. We know that Peter's one of the ten who's indignant. These two seem to have some competition going on. 
It'd be interesting to do a study on this. If you look back in chapter 19, verse 27, Peter grows concerned about his reward. He wants to make sure that, that he's getting rewarded. Well, now John's concerned about a reward. And on Resurrection Sunday, John and Peter will visit the tomb of Jesus, an empty tomb. And John records a race between him and Peter. He beats Peter to the tomb, but Peter's the first one in the tomb. This is a curious thing to me. There seems to be some kind of competition to these two. But the competition to rank greatest in the kingdom, this is not commendable. Jesus does not bless this. This is no way to advance in the kingdom. Competition, we'd say, is not the way up. Another way to avoid promotion in the kingdom of God is ambition. Ambition. Here I'm talking about a a self-promotion. It's fueled by pride. It's that type of ambition I have in mind. In verse 21, the Lord asks Mrs. Zebedee the question of a lifetime, what do you wish? And she asks for the highest promotion for her boys. Second place, third place in the kingdom, seating on the right and on the left of the king. I would submit that these places actually will be occupied by people we've never even heard of. Quiet people, unassuming people, people who went about the Christian life serving Christ, doing very hard things, suffering greatly, and doing it without fanfare. The last shall be first and the first last. Thirdly, ignorance. Ignorance hinders advancement in the kingdom. James and John in this passage did not listen to what Jesus just said. Remember, he predicted his death and resurrection, verses 17 through 19. He used words like mock and scourge and crucify. I mean, at best, their follow-up, their reaction to this is insensitive, that they would come along and follow up with this type of a question. I would expect some kind of mass outpouring of empathy. Instead, they won dibs on the best seats in the kingdom. This is like visiting a friend in the hospital who's gotten out of surgery in a full body cast and wanting to borrow his car key since he won't need them for a while. That's the level of ignorance these men have to someone else's experience. And it makes sense that if they can't remember what Jesus just said, they're going to forget his previous teaching as well. Forgotten were all those occasions we've reviewed. Remember, we read those predictions Jesus made. Possibly they forgot about those. Forgotten were other lessons. Remember the story, the account, when Jesus took the child and placed the child before them and said, this is what greatness is like? This is humble trust. Humility is the key to greatness. And we learned last week of the grace of God, that that God will handle the distribution of rewards in the end. It's a good moment to pause and be reminded that if this morning you were in the teaching business, if you're an elder, if you're a, a teacher, an instructor in the school, if you're a parent, it may take a few passes for it to sink in. 
You might cover the same material over and over and over again. You might wonder if you're doing it right. Am I speaking a foreign language when I teach on this? It could be the student. Jesus taught these disciples the same thing over and over and over again. And we see this morning that they still didn't get it. Cannot slay Jesus for that. The fault surely cannot be his. But he kept at it. The repetition over and over again. And Paul would go on to tell Timothy later in the New Testament to preach the word with great patience and instruction. And it takes time. In fact, we'll see in a moment, Jesus responds to them with a great tenderness and compassion. But maybe this ignorance comes as a result of discomfort. Maybe they were catching on, at least in part, to what was coming. And maybe it was all just too, too painful. It was easier to shelve or ignore, much easier than accepting trying to wrestle with the reality of what's going to happen. They'd rather just ignore it. But list it on every resume and enclosed in every portfolio for citizens of the kingdom of God is suffering. Suffering. Jesus declares, you do not know what you are asking Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? If Jesus will pay with his life, what if his followers? What is it to be for you and I who claim the name of Christ? This word, this cup, is a metaphor for suffering and for persecution. It comes right over from the Old Testament. Psalm 75, verse 8, a cup is in the hand of the Lord. And the wine foams. It is well mixed, and he pours out of this. Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its sediment. Jeremiah 25, verse 15. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, says to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. They will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. And on Thursday night of Holy Week, Jesus prayed, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. If there be any other way to accomplish this salvation. And Jesus knows. He knows what will come. For James and for John, James would go on to die as the first martyr. In Acts chapter 12, verse 2, Herod had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And Jesus knows as well what is to come for John. He knows better than we do. We know that John wrote Revelation, exiled on the island of Patmos. Patmos was an island used by Rome To exile people they didn't want, it often meant a death sentence. Every Christian experience involves suffering. And there is a cup for each of us in in some form, with some volume filled with, with some type of suffering. James and John, 
they came seeking promotion. But it's not a matter of competition. And it's not a matter of ambition. And it's not without affliction. You know, we live in an age where there's attempts to to sell the Christian faith, to try to market it and package it, to make it a consumable good. And when that happens, this idea of of Christian suffering is is removed. It's, It's relegated to some bottom shelf and ignored. There exists in this very morning, at this moment, an immense army of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. It stretches across all denominations, in hamlets and towns and cities across this great land, people who are strong in the power of God, people endowed with gifts, people who are brimming with blessings, people assembled to do His work as long as there's no suffering. But we know that the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of this world. And the promise is that for each of us, there is some measure of some cup of some suffering to drink. The greatest suffer. We know about Jesus. A Good Friday is five days away. Simple association with Jesus meant suffering. Take Matthew, for example. Matthew was a disciple. He wrote our gospel. He gave up a lucrative tax business to go and follow Jesus. That meant some form of suffering. It's comparable to you and I leaving our our homes and our closets and our garages and going to a third world country. How about Lazarus? Lazarus died Jesus rose him from the dead. The Jews found out about it and wanted to kill him again. John Mark suffered because he did ministry. There was a point where he and Paul went different ways on a missionary journey. That could not have been easy to be rejected by a man like Paul. In Galatia, Peter suffered humiliation. Paul publicly rebuked him for stoking division. In Colossians, Epaphroditus got sick doing the work of ministry. And in Philippians, two women, Euodia and Syntyche, they suffered because they're part of a local church. The very thing that should have united them and bonded them was the source of a quarrel and conflict. There's no one-size-fits-all for suffering as Christians. Many of you know this. Some of you even know this better than I do. And in this life, as believers, we'll suffer from without, we'll suffer from within. And in fact, some of our suffering may go away, but some may last a lifetime. It was Paul who wrote of this thorn in the flesh. Lots of debate about what that thorn was. But he describes it as a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. And three times he asked Jesus to remove it. And the Lord would not. It kept him weak. And it kept him humble. And it kept him dependent upon the Lord. That when Paul woke up each morning, he woke up turning to Christ. He suffered, but he grew in the Lord as a result. Growth in the kingdom happens by suffering. Well, so far in our message here, we've seen that the way up is actually the way down. 
We have an example of what not to do and how the disciples asked Jesus this favor. And we're also reminded of this great mentor and model God gave us in Jesus. Well, finally, our last point this morning, verses 24 through 28, all promotions go through the basement. Promotions go through the basement. If we want to be servants, we will be like our Lord. And that means humble service. In the wake of these ten indignant disciples, and then the two self-promoting disciples, Jesus gathers them all together and he teaches. There's a way in which the world views promotion. And Jesus teaches that. It's about gaining power. It's about lording power. It's about keeping power. In fact, in the days of Christ, we should note that most governments were pretty tyrannical. Dictatorships. The Roman Empire, for example, was extremely powerful. They ruled over the populace, and they did it by lording their power upon them. In fact, Roman leaders made themselves out to be gods. A denarius was a coin on which was portrayed Emperor Tiberius, and it portrayed him as the semi-divine son of the gods. Herod Philip's coins showed his head with the inscription, quote, He who deserves adoration. Emperor Galba summarized worldly kingship without holding anything back, quote, He could do what he liked and do it to anyone. Well, to our first point this morning, we have a model. We have an example. And this example that we have is not a famous celebrity. He's not a successful entrepreneur. He's not a corporate president. He's not a chart-topping singer. He's not even a professional athlete. Great men exercise authority, but if they lack one feature, they're doing it wrong. Whoever wishes to become great, Jesus says, shall be your servant. What characterizes the Christian life? Servanthood and enslavement to others. Completely contrary to the way of the world. It even rubs up against the flesh. But this yet is the job description of every citizen of the kingdom. And again, Jesus is not commanding you to do anything that he hasn't already done. In fact, it will be hard for you and I we might say impossible, to ever do more for Jesus than he's done for us. We're not going to eclipse him or or surpass him in our service to him in some way. Remember, a few verses back, Jesus told his disciples about his death. And this is just one way that he serves us. He lays down his life for us, and he now explains why. Why he must die. The Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom, when the Bible speaks of it, it refers to a payment. In the day in which Jesus lived, it often meant a payment to to, to bring back a prisoner of war to free a slave. In this verse, it's the language of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, God's people would sacrifice animals. They would atone or erase their sin. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, we understand without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But you and I no longer offer sacrifices. 
All of these sacrifices pointed to Jesus. They're fulfilled in Jesus. He is the ransom. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 26 goes on. But now he, now Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Jesus served us, and he gave his life for us. You see, when Jesus gave his life, he did more than just stop breathing. There was something monumental that happened in that moment. His shed blood, it paid the price for our sins. And if you believe upon him this morning, if you believe that you have sin and that Jesus did this, that this is fulfilled in him, you have forgiveness for your sin that will no longer be held against you. You will stand before God and be declared not guilty. And he's coming back. We read that in this passage in Hebrews. Not to judge you, but to bring you with him. To save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So how are you waiting this morning? What does it look like? Are you invested in promotion? Not the promotion of yourself, but the kingdom of God. Are you invested in imitating your mentor and getting to know him and watching him and acting like him? Are you invested in putting off some of those old ways of promotion, some of that old ways of advancement? There's this wonderful parable. We'll get to it later in Matthew, but I want to close with it. It's a wonderful parable about faithful service. You may recall in this parable, there's a master. He goes away from his estate. And he leaves in the care of his servants talents or money, or we might call them gifts. Two of these servants faithfully used what he left them. One of them did not. And when the master returned, he punished the unfaithful servant. He called him a worthless slave, and he judged him. Practically applied, this would be someone who did very little with what Christ has given him or given her. But the other two servants, they faithfully served their master. In his absence, they were faithful with what he left them. And they knew that he would appear a second time, and they eagerly awaited that. They respected him, and it showed. You see, our service to Christ, it's simply a reflection. It's simply an overflow of our love and our affection for him. It's a barometer of the condition of our heart. If we're genuinely impacted by what took place on this Holy Week, if what Jesus did on Friday, if the emptiness of the tomb means something, that's going to move us, that's going to change us, and that's going to impact us. It's going to turn us into faithful servants. Mark you, it's not perfect servants, but faithful servants that changes us into promoters of his kingdom, not our own. And our faithful service prepares us then for those great words which we long to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things, but I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy 
of your master. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you for the work that you have done on this week. Many millennia ago, We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for your sacrifice and your service. We pray for grace to respond to that with joy, with gratitude. We pray that you would grant us a grace to be humble and faithful, that we would be just like you, our our beloved mentor and model. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for being a God who has been so kind to us. Recall to our minds throughout this week your many deeds that week so long ago. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.